This is an ABC podcast. This is RN. I'm David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. This week, a sceptical take on an old ethical standby. You gotta go and get angry at all of my honesty. We're all on board with the concept of forgiveness, aren't we? Go the extra mile, turn the other cheek? Well, apparently not. At least, not when turning the other cheek could result in the perpetration of serious injustice. This should not be accepted by anyone who's paying any attention to the kinds of power relations that stand between real human beings because an ongoing obligation to unconditionally forgive those who wrong you is just like giving a free pass to people higher up the food chain to treat you (laughs) however they like. And that's just not adequate from the point of view of equality. Miranda Fricker is Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York and she was recently in Australia to deliver the Passmore Lecture at Australian National University in Canberra. The title of that lecture was Ambivalence About Forgiveness and that's what we're talking about this week. Most of us would think of ourselves as unambivalently pro-forgiveness. It's a nice thing to forgive each other. It's one of those human capacities that elevate us above the brutal and unforgiving realm of raw nature. But not everyone's a fan. Martha Nussbaum has written that forgiveness can involve a form of self-directed violence. And Miranda Fricker similarly has her reservations. She spoke to me from our Canberra studio. Certainly speaking for myself, I oscillate somewhat between thinking of forgiveness as wonderful and ideal and a powerful uh, feature of moral life and then worrying that very often it's sort of really going on in a degraded form and is a kind of subterfuge whereby we disguise continuing blame in a cloak of forgiveness and kind of pretend that we've forgiven and then really it becomes a kind of another stick to beat the wrongdoer with. And so I myself oscillate between those two pictures and I think in philosophy we see different writers oscillating between those two pictures too. So I wanted to try and look really closely at the certain psychological mechanisms that go on between the forgiver and the forgiven and to see whether we can explain why those mechanisms are so prone to go wrong and if we can reveal them as intrinsically prone to go wrong and to deteriorate into a kind of resurgence of blame that might help explain our tendency to oscillate between optimism and pessimism about forgiveness itself. Sure. Well, you've mentioned blame there. And of course, before we get to forgiveness, we have to begin with blame, which unlike forgiveness is is often seen as something socially damaging. We shouldn't rush around just pointing the finger and um, playing the blame game as the expression goes. But you see blame as having a valuable proleptic function in the process of forgiveness. Can you explain that and maybe begin with an explanation of this word proleptic? Yes, very happy to explain this bizarre word proleptic. A proleptic mechanism is a mechanism that involves treating another person, or it could be a group, as a future version of themselves, thereby causing them to come to be that future version of themselves. So it's an idea we're kind of familiar with from social theory and thinking about self-fulfilling stereotypes, for example. So let me give you a more general example. If you're a member of a group that doesn't get treated as if it's financially responsible, so we might stand back and say, the powers that be, the banking system, those who can give loans and mortgages, treat members of this group as if they were financially irresponsible. 
So those sorts of treatments involve it being difficult for people like you to get banking loans, to get mortgages on the same terms, to get startup loans for business and so on. That might cause members of your group to start to behave in ways that look financially irresponsible, having recourse to loan sharks and getting in ever spiralling interest rates so that you can never pay back the loans and so on. And so being treated as if you had a certain feature, namely being financially irresponsible, actually comes to cause you to display that feature. But what's really going on there, or at least another way of describing that process of how the self-fulfilling stereotype works, is a proleptic mechanism. Members of your group are being treated as if you had a certain feature and thereby caused to come to have that feature. So you're treated as the future version of yourself, thereby being caused to come to be that future version of yourself. But what we can see in the case of interpersonal moral situations where one person blames another for a wrongdoing or an alleged wrongdoing is that sometimes it's not proleptic at all. Sometimes uh, I just might remind you, if you've wronged me, of a reason you already have and share and you instantly say, oh God, yeah, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that thing and then I forgive you. But other times the Blame might have an awful lot more work to do than that. And if it's successful, it might succeed in operating proleptically. So that would happen by me saying to you, you really should have treated me better. Maybe let's imagine we're friends and you've lied to me. So I say, you really shouldn't have lied to me in that way. But at the moment, you don't care and you think that it's okay to lie to people like me. But maybe through my communicating my blame towards you, I can come to actually make a causal change in you, bring you towards having a reason that at the moment you really don't have. And it'll be proleptic insofar as I'm treating you now in communicating my blame to you as if you already had a reason which right now you lack, but I'm thereby causing you to come to have that reason. So putting it in the terms I used before, I'm treating you as if you're already a future version of yourself, thereby causing you to come to be that future version of yourself. And so we see that this fairly ordinary mechanism of what we call causal social construction that we saw in the case of groups being treated as if they're not financially responsible and thereby being caused to behave in an irresponsible way, we see it played out in the interpersonal frame in a positive way so that we might cause each other to come to have reasons which right now hold no sway with us because we just don't care. But we can bring each other to care in a way that uh, I think is incredibly important for how we see you know, the ordinary moral bonds being renewed, reaffirmed, and even new reasons and new forms of moral understanding coming about. So I think proleptic mechanisms in blame are crucial to how we educate each other morally and how we um, bring each other to care about new values, which before we didn't care about. But you also see something problematic or potentially problematic in that sort of power. Proleptic blame can can go wrong in, in, in certain ways. Yes, absolutely. I think it's crucial to recognise that proleptic blame is or involves the operation of a certain sort of social moral power, a power to influence what goes on in the head of the other party. And although I've been emphasising so far how morally progressive I think it can be in the sense that moral progress and moral change really depends on it, by the very same token, we should recognise that, you know, let's imagine, you know, if if one's a moral oppressor and you're you're looking to make one group think that they're properly subordinate to another group, communicated blame of the proleptic kind is your friend. It's a mechanism through which you can get the other lot to think that they're subordinate. So, for instance, I don't know, if we take a gender example from the 19th century, or let's hope it's from the 19th century, we imagine a marriage situation where 
he promises to honour and protect and she promises to honour and obey. Perhaps when they're married, she might rebel somewhat against this idea of a virtue of wifely obedience and she disobeys him, perhaps in front of other people. He may feel shamed by this. He may blame her for what she's done. Now, she might feel at first a little bit sort of ambivalent. Perhaps she was thinking, why should I just do what he says just because he's my husband? But in communicating his blame to her, reminding her of marriage vows that she and he both solemnly took and appealing to norms of the day and all the rest of it, he may succeed in convincing her anew that she really ought to display a wifely virtue of obedience. And if he does succeed in that, then he will have been using a slight version of proleptic blame because it didn't take that much persuasion on this occasion. He's reminding her, drawing back into values which she was, as it were, were slipping through her fingers for a while and now he's insisting on them again. And if he convinces her, then he's drawn her back into what I would say is a kind of oppressive conception of uh, what it is to be somebody's spouse. And so, yes, communicative blame when it operates proleptically, even just a little bit of drawing someone back into values they were beginning to stray from, can be the friend of an oppressor and moral regression, just as it is the friend and tool of moral progression. Well, let's turn here to forgiveness, which also has this proleptic power to effect a change in the wrongdoer. And you've categorised forgiveness into two forms, um, conditional and unconditional. So if, if we begin with conditional forgiveness, which is conditional upon the wrongdoer, accepting responsibility and, and repudiating his or her aberrant behaviour for the future, that's the condition. How can this sort of forgiveness go wrong, become deformed, if you like? Yes, I think with conditional forgiveness, the way it can go wrong is fairly on the surface, fairly obvious. And the quotation from um, Martha Nussbaum you mentioned earlier, she's very much um, exploiting this point, which is that you can imagine if uh, you're standing there, the wronged party, demanding apology, perhaps demanding some kind of uh, self-abnegation, self-denial from the person who's done you wrong before you're willing to forgive. It's very easy when we remind ourselves that you're in a position of someone who's been morally wounded to see how you might go into excess. It might become a situation where you demand too much from the wrongdoer before you forgive. And really, I think what's going on there is less indicative of forgiveness per se, because it's really about what you rightly describe as the condition of conditional forgiveness, which is acknowledging fault. And that's the purpose of communicated blame. We blame others in order to get them to acknowledge what they've done wrong, to shore up or come back to a kind of shared moral understanding with the person who's wronged. And obviously, when you're a wounded party, especially if you're angry, and especially if you have a special sort of social authority or power on top of that, there'll be a kind of natural tendency to overdo the blame and overdo the punitive tones so that uh, it becomes a, a stick to beat the person with rather than a matter of merely fulfilling the condition of forgiveness. So it's that kind of forgiveness that, that says, I forgive you for this terrible thing that you did, even though that thing just underlies everything that I've always, all the terrible things that I've always thought about you, they're, they're all true and justified, and yet I forgive you. <laughs> you sort of just keep underlining the sin. As yes, it were. that would certainly be, be one form of it, yes. And holding out on the forgiveness too. So no, you're not sorry enough yet. Go and you know, beat yourself up a bit more before you're, I'm ready to give you this gift of forgiveness. <laughs> On RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest is Miranda Fricker, Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York. 
Well, how about unconditional forgiveness, gifted forgiveness, as you've termed it? What is it and what is sometimes wrong with it? Unconditional forgiveness is really fascinating and lots of people writing on it in really interesting different ways. And some people have expressed scepticism about unconditional forgiveness, worrying that it looks awfully like a way of just letting people off or maybe even condoning their wrong behaviour. Others have come to its rescue and explained it as a, a special sort of gift or a special act of grace. If we imagine a case of severe wrongdoing and yet where someone who's wrong steps up and says, I want to forgive you even though you're not yet remorseful or sorry or repudiate what you've done one little bit. What's going on there? Well, I think a helpful analysis is to see it, in fact, as a proleptic version of conditional forgiveness. It involves all the same elements, a wrongdoing and a kind of letting go of the blame feelings on the part of the forgiver. But what's not in the immediate picture is the ultimate repudiation of the wrong by the wrongdoer. But if we think of real examples of unconditional forgiveness, and if we emphasise what indeed many people have emphasised, which is that it has this amazing power to disarm, to humble, to soften the wrongdoer, so that all their, as it were, armour is gone, and they're much more ready to acknowledge what they've done wrong than they would be if you just kept on blaming them and standing there waiting for their repudiation up front. In fact, what very often happens when somebody musters the as it were, transgressive generosity of forgiving up front, even though there's been no repudiation yet, is that the recipient of that abnormal gift of forgiveness is humbled, is amazed. And why is he or she humbled and amazed? Well, because we all know that normally you have to say you're sorry before you get this gift of forgiveness. And it's that very surprise which has the humbling effect. So what we see in conditional forgiveness of this kind is a rearrangement of the normal elements of conditional forgiveness in time. So that instead of the repudiation being demanded up front prior to the forgiveness, what we see is it lobbed into the future as a hoped-for outcome of the forgiveness and indeed a kind of retrospective rationalisation of it. And so I found this a kind of fascinating feature of, of, of these two practices, which I think displays a pattern I suspect we see in many different cultural practices or social practices which are subject to a kind of cultural evolution, which is that once we've got used to one set of meanings, we can sort of play with them a bit and do something a bit more creative by rearranging them and rearranging the elements in time. I mean, a very sort of silly analogue of it is that, you know, you can't understand, say a spoof spy movie until you've already understood how spy movies work. Well, similarly with these examples of forgiveness, I think if somebody just goes in for unconditional forgiveness without its being informed by the meanings that are drawn from conditional forgiveness taken as a prior practice, then it just looks like letting people off and is nothing more. But once we understand it as a kind of culturally evolved version of conditional forgiveness, we can see how it belongs to the same family. All true, and yet is it also the case that there's no moral demand there? And is that moral demand necessary for the wrongdoer to reflect on what he or she has done, perhaps, or indeed contest the charge? You know, it's, it's something that drives a lot of atheists crazy when Christians tell them that Jesus has forgiven them. You know, it's this sort of unwanted gift being thrust into their hands when they feel they haven't even done anything in, in, in the first place. Is that something problematic for you as well? 
Yes, absolutely. So I'm forever interested in what one might call the pathologies of these practices, the way that they, the ways they go wrong, and it especially ways that they go wrong where they're bound to go wrong in this way because they're deteriorating into something condescending or self-aggrandizing or infuriating because it kind of silences the opposing voice is built into the nature of the forgiveness itself. So um, the example you give is is perfect, I think. Take what I'm calling gifted forgiveness. In that sort of case, think about what one does when one's really trying hard to gift forgive someone who's done you wrong. It often involves a great, you know, sincere effort of overcoming blame feeling, especially if the wrong is quite a severe one. You recognize they're not sorry, um, they probably never will be. Perhaps that's because they just see morality very differently from you or... Perhaps it's because you think they have a particular blind spot in this area. Or maybe you try to go for the sort of upfront gifted forgiveness because for completely independent reasons, you think that having the full argument about it will be damaging to other relationships. You can imagine a, a mother and father doing this in relation to the way they might wrong each other because they want to spare the flack that will, as it were, affect the children if there's an argument about it. So for whatever reason... You muster all the generosity you can and you try very hard up front to forgive this person who's wronged you quite badly without going in for the usual to and fro argumentation of communicative blame that calls them out on it and demands an explanation and so on. So what are you doing? You're doing what some people rightly call one-sided forgiveness here and you're saying to them, you forgive them for that bad, that ill thing they did you, that wrong they did you. And you don't, you're not looking for conversation. You're trying to do it all on your own in this one-sided process. And you think you're doing it out of generosity and because you're trying to save others the harm or you think the wrongdoer will never change. And so you're busy on your own, as it were, suppressing the blame feelings and communicating in whatever way to the other. You, you forgive them for this gross betrayal or, you know, whatever it might be. And what are you doing? You're thereby preventing them from being able to take part in this conversation, what should be, I would say, a conversation about what's gone on wrong. Because after all, shared moral understandings will only really be the real thing, <laughs> real shared understanding, if it's a kind of negotiation where both perspectives come into play. If it's just one side dogmatically silencing the other, albeit from a an aspiration to be super generous, then it just kind of is lapsing into dogmatism, lapsing into some kind of solipsism where... You're just not open to the other point of view, not open to that person saying back to you, you know what, I did do you wrong, but it really isn't a betrayal. That's making a huge big deal out of this thing. Can we, we, need, to, we need to rethink this together so I can apologise for the thing that I actually think I did rather than just the thing you're telling me I've done. So, so yeah, I, think, I hope that explains that I, I think gifted forgiveness is especially prone because of the way one's trying to discipline one's own feelings, blame feelings all, all alone to corruptions of, you know, self-aggrandizing attempts at magnanimity or condescension or, as, as you mentioned in the case of um, a religious case where one party's perhaps the forgiver is religious and the other who's forgiven is not religious, then there's a mismatch of moral understandings there which uh, may not be possible to iron out, but that's, that's one way in which the conversation is, in, as it were, insufficient to achieve the shared understanding of what's gone on between the two, which can be infuriating for the person forgiven. Well, I'd like to turn, talk about this now in the context of some of the debates that have been going on um, you know, loosely under the rubric of feminism. I know feminism is, is, is an area where you've also done a lot of work. And 
you have some interesting insights into the way that power relations can play themselves out in acts of forgiveness, particularly where the forgiver is in a, uh, a higher social or economic position than the one being forgiven. But how about in situations where the onus of forgiveness is on the one with less power? And I'm thinking here of the debates swirling around sexual harassment and sexual assault and the Me Too movement where men in positions of power have been blamed for their abuses towards women and now their accusers are in the position of granting or withholding forgiveness. Where do the moral fault lines lie in that situation, do you think? Yes, I mean, the question of blaming and forgiving, I think of as very much in the domain of interpersonal morality, whereas I'm not sure how much the notion of forgiveness does or should really play a role in more formal procedures where there have been formal complaints of of people's behaviour in the workplace and so on. But I think in interpersonal morality where um, there are these sort of power differentials, as you point out, it's it's really fascinating. And one, just to give an example, there's, there's very interesting feminist work in the philosophy of religion problematizing one Christian idea of there being a kind of universal standing obligation to unconditionally forgive those that wrong one. And some feminists there have, I think, very convincingly written about how this should not be accepted by anyone who's paying any attention to the kinds of power relations that stand between real human beings because an ongoing obligation to unconditionally forgive those who wrong you is just like giving a free pass to people higher up the food chain to treat you (laughs) however they like. And that's just not adequate from the point of view of equality. So I think there can be a very interesting tension between values that people might embrace in terms of their interpersonal morality and values of equality in the more politicised social space. And certainly from my point of view, I do not think it's a good idea to embrace any particular ideals of forgiveness which render one excessively vulnerable and give the kind of ongoing permission to others to treat one badly. But I am not a religious person, so I don't have the particular kind of background impotence to try and embrace that value. But I think those that are religious and do have that background impetus are engaged in a struggle of conscience about which values to embrace. And I, I think that, that those feminist ideas about um, even religious practices always taking place in the context of hierarchy are really important ones to bear in mind. I mean, in general, in moral life, we... I think we really do need our interpersonal responses to wrongdoing to be sensitive to power differentials. And so one aspect of the normativity of forgiveness quite generally, whether one embraces unconditional forgiveness or just the conditional kind, is that people shouldn't be a doormat. <laughs> you know, there's a there's such a thing as premature forgiveness. But it's very important that the person who's wronged you doesn't thereby have a right to claim and demand forgiveness from you. That's that's weird. You can't demand gifts. <laughs> um, and we can only forgive when we are able to forgive. So the way the reasons to forgive stack up, and they can stack up very high so that someone can be at fault if they don't forgive another person. They might just be mean and unforgiving and just venting. Still, even while that's a situation where... Uh, you know, her friends might gather about her saying, for goodness sake, you've got to forgive him now. He said he's sorry, there's nothing more he can do. You're just creating more bitterness, bitterness in doing this. Still, he, the person who wronged her, has no right to demand it. 
And I think that's a very important kind of um, feature of the normativity of forgiveness, if you like, that reasons to forgive stack up, but they never amount to a kind of dyadic right to be forgiven. Miranda Fricker, Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York. And I have to beg your forgiveness. That's it for this week. Check us out online. We have a podcast if you haven't found that yet. And more information about today's topic on the website. Go to abc.net.au slash rn. Or you could just Google The Philosopher's Zone because that's who we are. My name's David Rutledge. Next week, my guest will be the philosopher and cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett, who's currently in Australia. And I know there will be many of you out there who will be very keen to tune in for that one. So join me next Sunday at 5.30pm or grab the podcast. Thanks for your company this week. Bye for now.